0: Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to VTviewpoint at radiovermont.com.
1: Good morning. This is Brad Ferland, WDEV Vermont Viewpoint in historic Waterbury, Vermont. Uh early morning for me, getting my daughter to school. Getting the sheep fed and watered, throwing hay down and, uh, coming in. I hiked, uh, Elmore Mountain last night to watch the moon rise and my body is, uh, having a discussion with me this morning, uh, about that. It took about three hours total, um, up and down. And when I got to the fire tower, I was like beat, but I was only halfway. <laughs> so it was, it was, uh, it was a great night, though I didn't get to see the moon; it was behind the clouds. But the hike was good. I'm really excited for my first guest this morning, uh, Molly Gray. Welcome. Good
2: uh, morning, Brad. Great to be in the studio. That sounds like an awesome hike.
1: Yeah, it was. It was fun. It was slow. The, there was a path sort of right up the middle um, that I could stand on, and my dogs were running all over the place. But um, and and then you know by the time I'm coming down, it's pitch dark. But it was great. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so um, welcome. You've probably been at WDEV more than me, but um, <laughs> it's always
2: a pleasure to come into studio. You know, walking up the stairs and looking around and saying, "This place, such an institution. A lot of history here. So special to be here
1: today." Yeah, it's great. And I know you. We look on the walls and all the musicians of Vermont over the years are their posters and their music and their smiling faces, and it really it's. Part of the fabric, and it's it's quite amazing. Um, so I w- want to start. Um, you're a Newberry, um, you're a Newberry girl, right? Sure yeah. <laughs> well,
2: technically South Newberry, but we can say within the town of Newberry. Yep, born and raised, and uh, live now in Burlington with my husband, but get home as much as I can.
1: Yeah, and what was early Newberry for you? Was that was it farm life? Is that what it?
2: Well. Uh, Maybe just to orient folks, uh, oftentimes say I'm from Newbury and they're like, oh, you know, up by the Canadian border. And I'm like, well, no, not really. That's, it's actually right in the Connecticut River, um, equidistant between St. Johnsbury and White River Junction. And Frank Bryan, who is a UVM professor, was from Newbury. said it's the town that time forgot. I think that's about right. Um, and still one in three kids can't get online. Um, it's very rural and, my folks have a vegetable and dairy farm there that they run with my two brothers. Um it's called Four Corners Farm and I was born in the farm. They're both from Dummerston and Marlborough. Originally my grandpa was a owned Brattleboro Tire and uh, my mom's side and my Grandparents on my dad's side helped run the Putney School. Uh, dad, my grandfather was a handyman. But my folks met, and they had both gotten off the U.S. ski team and kind of took that love of labor in terms of training and turned it into a love of labor around farming. So uh, moved up the river, um, bought the farm, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> and then I think my mom wanted to have 10 kids stop with three, but we all grew up working on the farm.
1: Yeah, so you did chores the whole nine yards. Yeah,
2: mostly um, it's a kind of diversified. So they have Jersey cows, which came a little bit later, but uh, all your garden vegetables, about thirty acres of strawberries, so you name it. There's a job for you on the farm.
1: Yeah, for sure. And the Jerseys were higher butterfat. And-
2: yeah, the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. 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 They do. Um, they make cheese now and do raw milk sales, but it's it's really good. It's yeah, good milk.
1: Wow. And surviving as farmers, right?
2: Yeah. I think luckily being diversified really helps. Um, You know, anyone who farms in Vermont right now knows that it's dairy farms. It's really, really hard. And even folks who've transitioned to organics, um, but they're able to do it. But it's it's not easy. That's for sure
1: yeah and Putney was um, we're going from Newberry to Putney, Putney to Newberry, but Putney was really a hot spot for cross country skiing right
2: yeah, um yeah, my dad actually was on the u s ski team two time Olympian, but it's the home of Bill Koch, who in nineteen seventy six won the first u s medal of course now we have Jesse Diggins, who's won. Um, some and and uh but really just the the Caldwell family John Caldwell I'd say it's kind of the grandfather of cross-country skiing but it was a real um training ground for a lot of skiers who went on to make the U.S. ski team
1: yeah it's amazing and did you cross-country were you
2: I did uh growing up um it's kind of what we did you know put on some skis get outside and sort of fire up the snow machine and we pull each other around you know it did some offline skiing too but um really learned to love it and then uh in middle school started racing and realized that all that time just messing around on skis after school uh, translated pretty well into being a good racer and then uh started racing and um then started racing nationally as a junior national skier, and ended up getting a full ride to UVM, which was a huge deal to ski for the Catamounts. Go Cats! Um, I know they're having a good season, but yeah, don't do as much as I like anymore; just not <laughs> fit enough. But do try to get out and just have fun.
1: Yeah, UVM definitely always had good cross country and downhill both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The I actually uh, raced in college for Champlain um, cross country skiing and. We were lucky to go to um, Lake Placid and ski in the Nationals there on the, on the uh, Olympic course. And it was amazing. And, and of course, I think anybody who cross country ski races, the art is in the, in the waxing.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole other race, right? I didn't know that, Brad. You, more of a classic, I think classic or Classic, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. It wasn't so much skating then, yeah. um, but it was so much fun. The only, the brutal thing we uh, the temperature dropped about fifteen degrees fifteen minutes before we started, and we had to re wax, and we froze to death on the race. It was just like you know below zero, and right. it was amazing.
2: <laughs> Nothing like thinking it's a you know clister day, and then it starts snowing, or a hard wax day, and then you need clister, and um, and the wax has changed so much. You know, we oh my God, I. I remember we used to wax down in the basement of the farmhouse without masks. We're putting on fluorocarbons and we know so much more now about the chemicals that are in some of the waxes and a lot of them have been banned. But my goodness, I think about, you know, almost a decade of breathing in all those fumes. Um, still feel healthy, but I'm glad that the sport has kind of really taken into consideration, you know, the challenges around waxing and Uh, trying to make sure that athletes stay healthy and in all the wax techs as well
1: right so i can now use the waxing as my excuse the the fumes (laughs) it was the fumes (laughs) all those particles yeah yeah we were waxing in the hotel lobby hot waxing and you know the the regular rub on wax and the corks and all the stuff and so it's just what it was what you did Um, so Newberry, um, what were the influences you, you go from farming, you go from, you know, skiing, you had, you had influences that brought you later in life to public service. What, what were the early things that happened?
2: I remember at UVM at some point I realized, you know, while I loved to ski race that maybe it wasn't tough enough or that. I didn't want to train all the time that I had started getting really excited about international relations. I loved my classes. Um, I maybe became a little bit more of a student than an athlete, although you're training all the time. And I remember, um, I did an internship one summer in Senator Leahy's office in Vermont. It was my junior summer going into my senior year. And I was like, wait a second. I mean, this, this, world of government and politics and public service. And I guess it just started opening my eyes. I wasn't going to make the U.S. team. I wasn't going to go to the Olympics. It just, that was kind of saw the writing on the wall. And so um, I finished the internship and it was 2005 in the fall. And it was the last time we actually had an open congressional seat. And this man named Peter Welch, who was the president pro tem of the Vermont Senate, decided he was going to run and, I was like, I've got a lot of energy. You know, I there's a big now no, there's kind of a big um a big training, training for any kind of race and campaigning are pretty similar. You've got to have a plan, you've got to follow it. And I just I got really excited about kind of taking some of my, I guess, ski racing energy and drive and putting it into service and service to Vermont. So I remember I worked on his campaign. I was a scheduler and graduated from UVM. And then he won in November of 2006 and was one of the first people he hired and invited me to move to Washington and work in his office, which as a farm kid from Orange County who had never really left Vermont was a really, really big deal. And I think in many ways, sometimes a, a saving grace because I had spent 10 years racing, obviously being a student, but I was so focused on that. And I wonder sometimes today what I would have done. I would think I would have been a little bit lost, but to have this other thing that I could focus my energy on and into. So I do credit him and and Senator Lake and all the staff for taking me kind of under their wing and seeing that there was some other talent there, Um and then that led to all sorts of experiences I never, ever could have imagined that had brought me to today and uh, serving as Vermont's lieutenant governor, which still remains the honor of my life. I think it's been one month since I left office and I miss it, miss it dearly.
1: Yeah, I bet. Um, two great mentors, Leahy and Welch, right?
2: Um, and there were others. I mean, I, Governor Madeline Kunin was a professor of mine at UVM and um, – even imagine a, uh, I, growing up, I was like, you know, hadn't seen a lot of women in public office and to know that you know, that was possible is a pretty big deal.
1: You journeyed around the state for, for a few years and got to really, um, meet a lot of people as Lieutenant governor and even going into it. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. What it, I mean what a great experience and and we're we're really a diverse state in county by county even um Franklin County you know pretty conservative other counties you know less conservative other counties real liberal yet you got to see a blend of of everything right
2: I did and um a lot to say about that you know, I think we said before the break, you know, you're talking about your daughter for a moment. I just want to come back to one thing that was really important to me after I got elected. Um, I really wanted to make sure that kids from across Vermont, especially rural kids, knew that anyone can be lieutenant governor. Um, I had a very non-traditional path. I hadn't served in the legislature, I worked as an assistant attorney general, but uh, came to the office with a lot of different experiences. And... It felt so important to make sure that kids knew about the office, knew what it was. So I started this thing called Lieutenant Governor for a day, and we had schools from all across the state um, come to the state house virtually and then help gavel in the Senate. And I feel really proud of that work, and I hope that there's a lot of kids that are now thinking about, oh, I can be Lieutenant Governor too, right? Um, but it felt very, very important to me to not spend – Every day in the office, but to take the office and be out on the road. And the office is a unique one, right? Because I preside over there, used to preside over the Senate as the Senate president, but technically part of the executive branch. And so I always felt it was my responsibility to be an extra set of eyes and ears and to be out in community. So for six months um, in the middle of my first term, I did what was called a Recover Stronger tour and spent a day per week in a different county in the state meeting with business leaders, nonprofit leaders, um, going into our downtown and just sitting down with folks and really trying to understand how the pandemic hurt them. You know, What did they need, not only from the federal government in terms of support, but from the state, and then putting that all together in a report for the legislature and the governor going into the legislative session. And, I mean, I fell in love with Vermont all over again. I'd been to towns I'd never been to and, you know, grown up here um and lived all over Vermont, but really came to appreciate and understand just how every community is different. There's a lot of shared values and perspectives, but um, depending on, you know, what industry is in town, kind of how the downtown is set up, where the, the school system is like, and to really respect and try to understand the individuality of every community. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there's no greater privilege than getting to know more of Vermont, and I really hope that Vermonters felt heard by my office, that they felt seen by me, and I think that that's extremely important um, from statewide elected officials, especially right now as we try to make sure that every community has access to resources.
1: Yeah, you you talk about that, and I I really appreciate that. Thank you for doing that. Um, I look at the legislature sometimes as being under the dome and, and not out in the community and we see this impact things. You know, if you if you don't know the boots on the grounds, and this could be in recovery, can be in education, it can you know
2: Housing Housing, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Policing. Yeah, absolutely. You name it. Um so when um you're out on the road were did people sort of take you by the arm sometimes and say, Hey, please try to fix this, or please, I'm desperate for this, or, you know, they don't understand, or what, what would...
2: Uh, all the time, all the time. And I'm trying to think of a couple examples. I was actually, I remember being up in Westford, where the town had everything set to build more housing, but didn't have the money for water and sewer infrastructure, which is just really basic, right? But if, we're not thinking about water and sewer. That's the fundamental infrastructure, right, that allows us to build um, and really trying to bring that back to the state and saying, wait, you know, we have to address this before we can even think about building or the impact of a lack of child care on businesses across the state and At some point, it wasn't just, you know, one business and one community. It was this constant drumbeat of concerns expressed from communities. The same, I would say, for broadband, that we still have thousands and thousands of businesses and homes, 60,000, maybe a little bit less than that now, who can't get online. And in a world where we expect school and access to economic opportunity, even democracy to be online at times, closing that gap can't happen fast enough, I think... For me, it was always important, not only in conducting the business of the office, but going out in community to show up, not as a Democrat, not as a progressive, not as a Republican. I am a Democrat, but to show up as lieutenant governor and be like, I'm here to listen. I'm here to understand. I want to know what the problem is and then do my very best to support um Connecting you with resources,
1: right? And then, so you you bring it back to the state house. You preside over the Senate, as and and that's a a daily responsibility. Um, you're a younger woman in a kind of a men's world. In- well,
2: more, there are more women now, but uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I yeah. mean, I've got some stories. <laughs> I'm <not Yeah>. sure.
1: <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not throwing, I'm not trying to disparage at all, <laughs> but it's challenging, um, and. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about sort of hierarchy. You were a lieutenant governor, so that you sit, you're part of the executive branch, as you mentioned. You probably were governor a few times, is that right? Did you?
2: You know, uh, definitely would get the call and say the governor's out of state, but. Um, I think it was pretty clear between myself and the governor that I wouldn't be writing any executive (laughs) orders while he was gone.
1: Be free, everybody! No school today! This is the governor. No, you couldn't, you didn't do that.
2: No, none of that, no. But, uh, did, you know, I was elected at 36, um, one of the youngest lieutenant governors in the nation, youngest in Vermont's history, for sure. And we hadn't had a woman serve in that office since 1997. So it was certainly a generation of young people who hadn't seen a woman in the governor's office or the lieutenant governor's office. And I remember, you know, this may not be the most interesting story to some of your listeners, but I think the women will appreciate it. I remember I was being sworn in and I'm up at the, the dais there and trying to control my nerves and I'm going to give some remarks after getting sworn in and I go to step forward up to the podium and I had these heels on, which learned how to wear them, you know, and uh, they went right through the floor because there was a heating grate that wasn't even in use anymore under the podium where Lieutenant Governor stands every day. I was thinking, man, has it been so long since a woman's been up here? Not to presume that all women wear heels, but I was and intended to continue to and So I'm like, I got through my remarks, you know, standing like a skier on these little grates. And then that weekend, um, went to Lowe's and got a big wood platform, put it up there with a shop mat and had some really strong footing for the rest of the next two years. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully it's still there for the next woman who's in the job. But
1: yeah. So so I had looked and I, I didn't find, I think there were, four women lieutenant governors. I, I know um, Madeline Cunin, um, Barbara Snelling, yourself, and who did I miss?
2: I was the fourth. Consuelo Bailey would oh, be the third, the, or the first. The Consuelo first. Bailey, yeah. And she was the first woman lieutenant governor in the nation. Uh, also grew up on a farm, also a lawyer, um, and she went all over the country. She was a Republican, but that's... you know.
1: Back in the day. Back in the day, yeah. yeah.
2: A really interesting story. And then I think she would have gone on to run for governor, but I believe had a, a sick family member and ultimately had to choose.
1: Mm. And
2: decided to, I think, care for her husband.
1: Wow. Yeah. Family first. Um, so you're up at the podium, you presiding over everything. What, what, is there a, is there a influence or a power there or, or not?
2: Uh, <laughs> Well, it depends on who you ask. Uh, (laughs) As someone who took the job seriously and took a lot of time each day to prepare, I believed that my job was not only to make sure that the rules were respected, but there was fairness in the process, and that I was ready for anything. A tie-breaking vote, which I didn't have, but it came very close on a couple of occasions. Um, But I was, I knew which bills were going to come up. I had a general sense of what amendments were going to come up. um, And sometimes they would come up on the fly, but I took time, you know, to make sure as a judge would before presiding over a courtroom to um, understand the process. And uh, some people say, Oh, it's just ceremonial. I did not think anything about it was ceremonial. And I think it's a disrespect to the office, frankly, to suggest that. So um, I really enjoyed presiding, um, learned a lot in the process. I, the first year and a half or year and three months was all virtual, which has never happened before. I was up there every day in an empty Senate, gaveling in with senators on Zoom, and then they came back in March of this last year. So I'm, I'm excited for, uh, current Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman because he's, you know, back presiding with an in person Senate and in person State House, which is, much more fun. And it's, I think, really important to be able to see people and, um, kind of gauge how the debate's going. But I loved presiding and maybe it's the the nerdy lawyer in me, but, um, it was a, a important and exciting part of the job.
1: Yeah. And I bet you did a great job. I felt bad for our, um, mutual friend, um, Senator Chittenden who, you know, gets elected and then you can't even go to the state house and, um, and you don't get – you really don't get the vibe and you don't get the interaction with the people or with whatever. So it, it wasn't a great scenario. And and the public got a little removed too.
2: They did, absolutely, Uh not to be able to be there every day. But I do think having remote access is really important and making sure that no matter where you live in the state that you can access government. So I hope that that still stays even though, you know, in-person committees – are you know back?
1: So I knew um, Senator Mazza um, as Richie Mazza from the store we lived in in Colchester, and I my first um, money earning job was picking up trash in his parking lot for five cents which I would then take into the store and buy a chocolate bar which is probably eight times larger back then than it is now (laughs) and it was a bonanza Uh, so we um, have a little bit more time before our break we're going to come back, we're going to talk more about education a little bit um, about um, a, a whole bunch of things I'm with Molly Gray and uh, we hope that uh, our listeners will come back and join us as well. WDEV, this is Brad Furlin, Vermont Viewpoint.
0: Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group. We're more than just radio.
1: Good morning. This is Brad Ferlin, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV. Um, we are talking with Molly Gray this morning. It's really great having you in studio, Molly. Um, a lot of, a lot of hats you've had. And, uh, we talked about role modeling for, for women. And I'm really grateful for you for, you know, um, doing all the things that you've done. Um, so reflections on being lieutenant governor are there are there takeaways are there things you see to you know we can improve I always wonder about you know when you hit, obviously you're going to have a majority party and um a lot of things you have 150 house members you have 30 senators you have a lieutenant governor you have a um house speaker um Seems to me from the outside often that there's there's a lot of power at the top, but does democracy happen? I mean, um, do we do we get the voice of each community with hierarchy?
2: Mm. It's a really interesting question. I mean, when you got halfway through the question, I was thinking democracy happens in Vermont. I saw that. I witnessed that firsthand. And to go back to the Vermont Senate for a moment, I really appreciated how senators when considering legislation and the work of their committees were often checking their own politics at the door and seeing themselves as custodians of democracy and thinking about really good policy, um, putting the policy ahead of uh, maybe whatever political issues they ran on. And um, one thing that I think is interesting now, there's a lot of talk about the veto-proof majority in the legislature, which is valid and important, but when it comes to a particular bill and a particular issue that we see folks oftentimes divide, not on whether they're Democrat or Republican, but what is in the best interest of their community. And I think that's, what's really special about Vermont, that there is that individuality. And um, I think the second part of of your question was really around, do we see community needs being met? And, I want to say yes, but we do sometimes see there's the Chittenden County block and then Orange County doesn't have a lot of representation and um, they're screaming sometimes to have their voice be heard. I think the same can be said for um, rural communities in southern Vermont and also in the Northeast Kingdom. Um, But there are some really good legislators, a lot of young people running for office, and I think that they're working hard to come together, be it with a, you know, Rural Vermont Caucus, um, you know, trying to create coalitions of power to make sure that community needs are being met.
1: Yeah, very important. There's there's almost two Vermonts in a way, right? There's, there's Chittenden County, and I know it's cliche to say, but there's – you're from up in the kingdom, and it's a whole different world up there. It
2: is a whole different world, and it makes me think of one, one issue, and I really respect Governor Scott's leadership. We worked – I would say, well together. I think he'd say the same thing. And we uh, even had a conversation the second to last day in office, just kind of like an exit interview, a debrief about how we work together. And and I think what I've also appreciated is that I can disagree with him. And there's one area where I've been really clear with him about some disagreement. I think I was talking to you earlier about the Woodside Youth Juvenile Facility um, that used to be up in Essex but now the state, DCF, is trying to place it in Newberry, which, of course, I you know, have personal ties to Newberry, but it's been a really challenging process. And here we have a small town where its development review board went through a process of considering whether this youth juvenile facility should be placed in Newberry. Um, it didn't meet the town zoning requirements so they denied the permit and then the states moved forward to try to continue to push the facility into newberry and this is a facility that we place on a class four road in the backwoods of newberry dirt road right um where police and human services uh hospital you know 45 minutes away at best uh, marginal cell service or broadband, a privately run facility, so it wouldn't even be state run anymore. And I think that there are legitimate concerns that the community has. But here we have a community that has little representation, good representation, but not a lot of representation in the state house. And uh, so the legislature is not giving it, in my mind, as much attention as they should in terms of overall state policy. But then the governor you know, continues to want to move forward because it's Newberry, right? Like, who cares about Newberry? It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, but I think it's it's in those moments where I, I deeply get concerned about the representation and how do we make sure that small towns don't just get railroaded in the state on some issues.
1: Was this a pre-existing structure that – it's going into or what?
2: It used to be a bed and breakfast that was purchased by a New Hampshire, uh, private company. And then it was renovated and was providing some services to the state. But the idea is that it would be a youth detention facility Mm -hmm. to support, uh, youth with acute need who are in either pre-trial detention or have been sentenced and a, yeah, a secure facility on again on a Class Four road in the middle of nowhere, um, with youth not having access to support services, and certainly not. You know, it's really tough to get. There's no public transportation. I mean, um, so it's it's a tough issue, and the governor knows how I feel. I've all I've said is you know go visit, go look for yourself, because this is just illogical. But I think we need to make sure that. Yeah, small towns are considered because if they do it in Newbury, they'll do it anywhere.
1: Yeah, so is this a done deal, you think, or, or it's, not?
2: Uh, the state has appealed the decision of the town. Uh, well, the state went to the environmental court to appeal the town's decision. The environmental court ruled in the state's favor, and the town's appealed to the Vermont Supreme Court. Okay. But I think that and the Supreme Court, I suspect, will issue an opinion you know, sometime this summer, maybe fall, but s- still has not heard. Um, Arguments. So it's initial stages of the process.
1: So I asked if it was a pre existing structure because if this was an Act 250 issue, you wouldn't see it for years, but (laughs) building up on a hillside in Newberry. But um, if it's there, it's there. Um, So, well, yeah, I hope that um, Newberry has a voice there or there's some consideration because it sounds like, um, and, and it's what we were talking about earlier. There's a difference between being under the dome or, or whatever in Montpelier and, and hearing things, but the boots on the ground on so many topics are, um, are so necessary.
2: Yeah. And the host, I was thinking, host a field hearing, go, go to the facility, drive out there in March when the road's impassable. And, um, and ultimately my legal training is in, you know, human rights law. And when I was working in the attorney general's office, I helped lead the St. Joseph's Orphanage investigation. We don't have the best history in the state around youth care.
3: Yeah, And yeah. we've learned
2: a lot from that. And I do have concerns when we're contracting with a private company, you know, what's the oversight plan? And then there's no access to public transportation so families can't visit kids potentially if they don't have access to a vehicle how do they get there to begin with what are we doing to make sure that children are cared for youth are cared for so again you know when I assume the best intentions but if we're gonna learn from the past um, this yeah. this in my mind is not in the best interest of the state and youth in our, in our care
1: well and wishing no ill towards this project there there are there was a facility in New Hampshire that had tremendous abuse that didn't have oversight. Um you talked about St. Joseph's which is really going way, way back, but still
2: Kernhattan even and there's been questions. In Kernhattan, yeah. 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 Um, um
1: so we I want to transition a little bit. Um one of my um favorite topics is school choice because I feel it's important. We have as as we talked earlier um, Vermont is the oldest state in the Union for school choice, 1869. We have you know about 80 sending towns around Vermont that don't have some grade level school. Um, and it's given opportunity to, um, you know, kids who, for various reasons, like bullying or academics or social or whatever, um, it's given them opportunities for for other choices, and I know that it's been something you um Newberry was a, a choice town I th- or never was, but um that's right they got Newberry got involved in the forced merger that's what mm-hmm. um, but but what about choice? you know what 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 are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I think it's an issue that's certainly before the legislature this session came up a bit last session. Uh, Senator Brian Campion, chair of the Senate Education Committee, um, introduced some legislation last session that would restrict um, public dollars going to schools that didn't have an anti-discrimination, independent schools that didn't have an anti-discrimination policy in place and would also um, ensure that public dollars wouldn't go towards any religious teachings in school. I think I have that right. The bill was never taken up by the House, so um, that ended last term, and I know that there's questions about legislation being introduced this session, but I think it's important to really take a step back, and how I see the debate unfolding is that there's a group of legislators that believe that by certain towns having the ability where they don't have a school to take public dollars and send their kids to an independent school that's not a public school, that we are not funding adequately, and we're not investing in access to public education in Vermont. <clears throat> but I think this position oftentimes overlooks, as you said, the real history of our state. In 1777, our Vermont Constitution's created with this obligation of one town and one school. 1869, the legislature said, "Wait, this isn't working," and that that's impossible to have what 252 public schools in the state. And allowed for public dollars to go to independent schools. Today, our independent schools are, are ski academies. They are St. Johnsbury Academy that has a fourth of students on free and reduced lunches. Thatford Academy, Burton, Burton Academy, schools that provide, in my mind, um, excellent education uh, to kids from all sorts of towns and all sorts of socioeconomic backgrounds. And so it's not an apples to apples comparison, um, to say that, um, you know, public dollars, um, you know, we just need to get rid of these schools. I don't, th- I just don't think that that's going to fix our public education problem. We have to focus on addressing and supporting public education, and our teachers, but also making sure that access and school choice, um, can survive in vermont and then there's also a bunch of legislation or not legislation court cases going through um the u.s supreme court opinions that we've heard and opinions that we're waiting on which and happy to talk about those
1: as yeah well. we're gonna we are going to talk more about that it's fascinating we're going to take a short break uh, my producer danny mckivrigan is keeping the trains running and uh always like amazing so thank you danny <laughs> Good morning. It's Brad Ferlin on Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. When I climbed the, uh, finally got up to the top of Elmore last night and, cl- and climbed the first section of the fire tower was there was ice and snow on the uh, stairs. I had my spikes on, but I have to. You have to climb at least one flight to see out over the lake and see if see if the moon was there. And the moon wasn't there. Um, but it was all right because I know it was out there somewhere (laughs) and uh, uh, maybe in a month on the next full moon, it'll, it'll surprise me. So I'm talking this morning with um, Molly Gray. We're going to talk a little bit um, more about school choice. I do have a caller on the line. um, Ted from Shelburne. Welcome to WDEV Vermont Viewpoint.
4: Thanks very much. I'll try being brief, but feel free to, Push your button,
3: <laughs>
4: exit me. But uh, and first, I will say I'm very glad to hear from Molly, and I sort of wish she had a different job. But uh, Thanks, I Ted. also welcome her being in Chittenden County or anywhere in the state. And I'll be, I'll, the real point is, and if you have a pencil, write down uh, www roots of empathy org and relates to social emotional benefits beginning in elementary school or sooner and it's uh, mary gordon is the originator of the program and the current director of it in toronto it started in newfoundland and it's just a great addition to young education and it's preventive of before you have a victim you have an abuser of one sort or another and if you don't build the abuser you are so far ahead you could hardly believe it uh so rootsofempathy.org i've said that about a hundred times with this phone number and also like rusty parker who molly wouldn't know who used to be the man at WDEV read a postcard on the trading post for me in the 1960s which traded me a travel trailer which accommodated my housing of an ex-girlfriend's dog in college in Ohio. Uh, Everything's a long story. Uh, But anyhow, I had a little bit of land without proper road access or anything but on a pond in Newbury so I have dealt with the town clerk and know the place very well. And I think I had an old college friend who lived there who never connected but anyhow that's a a wonderful town in a wonderful part of a wonderful state um so anyhow i've this i've tried very hard like when scudder parker was trying to be the vermont governor again way back in in the young molly's history um I was looking at Canadian TV and saw this program, Roots of Empathy, going into Montreal English Schools, and for some reason the website I paid attention to, and I haven't gotten over it, and I have tried to get this word to the wise to all kinds of leaders, names that you have mentioned and that you know well, and it doesn't get traction in terms of looking ahead. Uh, This will be my last thing, I think. I better quit. Um, But when... uh, Bishop Tutu died, one of the quotes that was publicized was that if you uh, I'm just speaking my interpretation, but if you keep taking dead bodies out of the river, you really have to go upstream and see what the problem is. And when Dave Iacoloni resigned his position at the head of DCF and Mark Johnson asked him how you'd get enough money to take care of all the problems and he said, you've got to just this. So look at Roots of Empathy and carefully, and look at Molly or Mary Gordon and her, look at all the sites, look at the recommendations and awards and honors that the program has. I think I'll quit there. I, I, I'm eager to get back to the program, but Correct. I just wanted to.
1: Ted, thank you so much for your, for your call, and uh, appreciate it. We're going to look at Roots of Empathy. Um, when you first started talking in the soft way, you have a little bit of a Mr. Rogers voice, uh, a nice voice. So thanks for being on the show. Um, Molly, any comments about that?
2: Well, first, Ted, thanks for calling, and, and I will definitely check out RootsOfEmpathy.org. I think that the timeliness of what I suspect is an investment in early childhood education and care and childcare and, um, supporting kids upstream, right? And that's what you're talking about. When we invest upstream and making sure our kids have the best care, the best education that then we're not investing in incarceration later. And, um, I couldn't agree more. I think there's a lot of appetite for that. The kids are not okay. Our kids are not okay coming out of the pandemic uh, we were just talking about that on break um, I'm now a proud stepmom to a twelve and fourteen year old and um, it's a journey with them every day to support them and uh, so thank you for your call and i I really look forward to learning more Thank you
1: so Molly we're gonna um, we only have about five minutes more I want to return to the to school choice and also sort of to what you talked about earlier in the program and that is. You got out, you went to the communities, you, you looked. If, if we had a suggestion, I don't know if it's possible, but, you know, if, if committee members, and I know they do this to some extent, but I, I'd love to see, um, the ad committees go into a, one of the religious schools and, and watch the ambiance of calm and order and love and, and care. Um, and maybe it won't change their minds, but I think they ought to see it.
2: Yeah, I think there's a ton of benefit in in field hearings, and maybe it's going to Mount St. Joseph's and trying to understand for Rutland what that school provides to the community. Going up to the kingdom, going to St. Johnsbury Academy, where I said earlier that one-fourth of kids are on free and reduced lunch. You know, this isn't a private prep school. I mean, I think there's a lot of – it is a private school, but it is this idea that – um, it's kids a privilege that are sent to these academies uh, in Vermont. Independent schools in Vermont are providing access to services and access to good education, oftentimes in rural communities where um, we have families who have a tremendous amount of need. And then, you know, to talk about our ski academies, I went to the Stratton Mountain School Um I got a scholarship. I was able to get some financial aid. My folks sold vegetables to the schools so I could go there because I wanted to ski race. And I wasn't able to stay at Oxbow where I was because I couldn't get more than 10 days off a semester. And I was trying to go to junior nationals. Um, for me, it made the difference, right? It really made the difference and allowed me to ski race for UVM. We produce more Olympians, winter Olympians per capita than any other state. I think it's a proud part of our tradition. It draws lots of Folks to Vermont, you know, Michaela Schifrin went to Burke Mountain Academy. So, I think our draw and our strength as a state is also that we have school choice, which is not to say that we um, don't need to. We have to. We absolutely have to invest in public education, supporting our teachers. I just don't think it's one or the other, and we should be able to achieve both.
1: Definitely should be hand holding. Um, a lot of communication between private and the independent and public. So that's um, we d- we didn't talk about the um, your political race um, and we won't talk much about it. But I just want to offer up it. it um, You know, there were a lot of factors. We can't boil it down. But I got postcards in the mail like all the time. A, a million and a half dollars were spent at least on outside money coming into Vermont. Um, it seems like that's. Um, needs looking at in some way.
2: Yeah, I'm glad we're <laughs> running out of time here because I, you know, I want to be, I want to end on a positive note, and, um, you know, to lose a race and not learn anything from it would be a double loss. So I'm still learning every day. Um, I wish Senator Ballant or Congresswoman Ballant, excuse me, the very best, and will will be and continue to support her in doing her very best work for us in Washington. But I think the big question that we have to address and as we step back as a state, as an as a democracy, is what's the role of money going to be in elections moving forward? I hope that super PACs and independent expenditure PACs uh, do not feel welcome here. But this race opened the door to that. One point two million dollars. And so it's something we need to address. I'll continue to stand strong and against um super PACs coming in and spending that much money because I don't think it's good for Vermont. And I just not even believe that only Vermonters decide elections.
1: Yeah. So um, a, a favorite movie of mine is um, A Boy Named Sailboat, and there's a line in that says, sometimes things happen so that other things can happen. And in a note to me, you put some surprise personal news. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We have about 30 seconds. Do you want to tell any surprise personal (laughs) news? Well,
2: you know, Brad, I was coming in this morning, and I thought, I just can't hide it. Uh, So you've got the big reveal. Um, My husband and I are expecting a baby in July. And, yeah, I guess when one door closes, another one opens. So we're really excited.
1: It's awesome. You're going to be a great mom, and uh, you're a great mom role model to to all i'm really glad you came in this morning um, want to get you back see where your journey takes you and uh, all the good you do so thank you
2: thank you so much and thanks to all the listeners today
1: good morning it's brad Ferlin on vermont viewpoint wdev it's monday i hope your Monday's going well it was tad chilly uh... the weekend People are probably thawing out, I hope. And, um, if you want to join our conversation this morning, we're at 802-244-1777 or 877-291 talk. my um, guest, my next guest, um, is joining us, Vermont coordinator, um, AARP, Vermont Fraud Watch Network, Elliot Greenblatt. Welcome, Elliot.
5: Thank you very much for inviting me
1: today. Well, it's great having you. Um, you and I haven't met, but you've got some, um, some very important, um, topics, um, that you share with listeners. And we have especially, um, with, with Valentine's Day coming up and, and all sorts of things. Um, we're, t- we're going to be talking today about romance scams. So, um, could you give us a little bit of a, uh, introduction to that?
5: Sure. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those categories that, of scams that uh, has been around for a long time and never really got a lot of attention because it didn't impact a lot of people. But what we've found in the last three years, basically because of the pandemic, there's been a dramatic increase in the number of people who have been victimized by fake relationships.
1: And is that, um, I mean, pandemic, um, play into that and, and more social media, um, contact is, is that why we're seeing more increases or has it been around and, um, people just didn't, didn't know about it as much or a little bit of both?
5: Well, it's a, it's a little bit of both because, uh, the pandemic created a situation where, a lot of people just simply weren't socializing in the normal way. We're relying more and more on uh, electronic media. Probably uh, develop skills, if we want to call them that, on a, on the computer or a tablet, and look for relationships. So uh, active searching. Uh, people who lost uh, significant others during the pandemic and, and were looking for uh some form of replacement and uh, the internet was there dating websites are uh, all over the place and as a result people end up uh trying something new that quite often has gotten them into trouble uh just you know to give you an idea of, of who's impacted by this because it's kind of fascinating uh, we we often look at the the senior citizen as the, uh, the, the typical victim. And in romance scams, this is impacting completely across the age spectrum. Uh, we're seeing scams, uh, impacting the 18 year old to the 29 year old bracket and then the over 70 bracket. The big difference is how much money is being lost. Typically in a younger uh, romance scam, 18 to 29 years old, the median loss is about $750. When you bump it up to 70 years old, the median loss is about $9,000.
1: Wow. And the pred- it sounds like the predators are pretty sophisticated. You mentioned somebody loses somebody, so they're, they would be looking at an obituary and then actually... Figuring out how to target a, a specific person here in Vermont is that is that correct?
5: I think that that happens to a certain degree, but the easier way for the criminal to um, do his thing or her thing is simply going into a dating website and creating an identity uh-huh. that they know will be attracting somebody. So it doesn't even have to be you know, a specific target. We call that spearfishing when you develop a an individual as a target. Uh, this we call catfishing. And pretty much you, you create a synthetic profile, and the, the profile you create is a combination of uh, uh, stock photographs, a made-up identity uh Kind of like the George Santos situation, you can create something, post it online, it's very difficult to check out, and make it attractive to a particular group of people.
1: So on one hand, I'm glad to hear that seniors are out looking for romance, yet what we're hearing is that um, it can be dangerous.
5: It, It indeed can be dangerous. Uh, the people that we are dealing with, the criminals, are extremely skilled, are very well educated. Uh, quite often, it's a, a situation that develops outside the United States. And because there's so much money involved here, uh, you have teams of criminals, somebody who does the profile development, somebody who handles the internet, somebody who handles the conversation, so that it's not one person, but it's a composite. And Uh. these relationships aren't overnight. They are relationships that can develop over three months, six months, as much as a year, so that the the criminal gets to know as much as possible about the potential victim.
1: So there's a grooming process. Um, it sounds sophisticated. And I, when I was really alerted when you said um, out of country, so this is this is not necessarily um, local local predator kind of thing. This is a very sophisticated um, t- type of thing that's going on.
5: Uh, I think that's a very fair thing to say. You know, there are local predators. Uh, Don't get me wrong. There there aren't, it isn't all coming from overseas, but we're seeing a significant amount of activity coming from overseas. And our research comes out of what the FBI and the secret service have found out
3: Hmm. through
5: connections in other countries. And, uh, Virtually all of the the scamming, the the crazy phone calls you get about uh, your McAfee has expired, or uh, the IRS calling these aren't originating in the United States; they're originating elsewhere.
1: Right. So is that um, one tip to our listening audience of um, a, a foreign accent for for lack of better description? Is that? I mean, it's not necessarily a red flag, but is is it possibly a red flag?
5: It's possibly a red flag, and you need to kind of pull some of these things together. Uh, for example, in the in the romance scam, uh, typically these scams begin either on a, a formal dating site or um, through social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Those are the places that these things begin and after a while of uh, the relationship being built the criminal will say let's move this into a more personal exchange Uh and you know do it into personal email so that the the ability to oversee and track it becomes uh, almost impossible and quite often the from you is going to be declaring that they really love you based on the information that that you've given them, which encourages you as the victim to give them even more information.
1: Right. And so, um, yeah. And we have, we have two scenarios there because I assume that dating sites in some respects work beautifully and that they are genuine. And yet um, you're, you're talking about a profile of a person who is really just looking to, to extort money out of an individual who's vulnerable for a relationship or otherwise.
5: Right. And you know, you put your your created, your synthetic profile into a dating site, somebody's going to see it. And because there are millions of people who use those sites. So it's a very easy process on the part of the criminal to, to create and then promote that image that they are uh, hoping somebody will will be attracted to. And, you know, there's some other red flags. For example, once that relationship starts, the individual who's creating this identity will come up with every reason imaginable to not meet in person.
3: Uh Uh-huh, yeah.
5: You know, I'm working on an oil rig off the coast of South America, or I'm in the military, and I can't get a leave because there's a crisis situation. So, you know, that that sort of thing keeps the distance, and there'll be repeated excuses of why we can't meet in person. Right. Yeah. You know, this is all linked to to the the potential victim here having gone through a very traumatic event. And now the criminal is creating his own so-called trauma and personal problem. So, uh, as I said, these take time to develop. They don't happen in the course of one phone call. They happen in the course of months. And in that process the victim has shared unbelievable amounts of information. Also, uh, you know, after quite a while, the, the criminal's going to say, let's exchange pictures, and then move that to some kind of a compromising picture, which can then be used for extortion. Mm. So it's, a, it's a very well-developed attack, and that's part of this problem. And then eventually, the person's going to come up with a reason why they need money. They may even su- they propose that you uh, invest in a particular uh, area and use cryptocurrency. So there are, there are very clear uh, steps that take place here, and it's very successful Back in nineteen nineteen, I'm sorry, twenty nineteen, uh, the median loss for people was about twenty six hundred bucks, and about twenty one thousand people reported being scammed to the Federal Trade Commission. That amounted to about one hundred forty three million dollars.
1: Wow! I think Elliot, you were leaving off with um, the. Uh, the fraud game has gotten more lucrative um over the years so it, the it's it's up it's up the ante for risk right no i mean no
5: question uh 2019 143 million dollars reported losses 2021 547 million so uh you know, you have a <laughs> A uh, 200-plus percent increase in the number of dollars lost, and they're lost as gift cards, cryptocurrency, through payment apps uh, like Zelle or Venmo, or just plain checks, people buying gifts for people. Um, and it becomes a, a building game as far as the criminals concerned. They see that there's a lot of money involved here and that draws them in. So, you know, there, there are some things people can do, and before somebody becomes totally emotionally involved, the best thing to do is talk to somebody that you trust. Now, that could be uh, a close friend, a family member, it doesn't matter, but when you suspect something, don't keep it to yourself. Um, if you feel that this is really not going where you want it to go, stop the contact. It's, it's very easy. If a person probably won't be calling. They'll be emailing you. Just don't return the emails and put their address in a, uh, a junk box so that automatically the email will go there. You don't have to do anything as far as continuing the relationship. And then... Whenever somebody says I need money, and quite often it's something like, oh, I've got these hospital bills that I can't pay. It's $4,000, and I don't know what I'm going to do. Can you help me out? My car's broken down. I'd love to come and visit you, uh, but I don't have the money to pay for the trip. So, and then the person will come up with every reason imaginable for not coming to see you in person. So this becomes a long-distance relationship that people uh, don't even see coming because of that length of time. They actually trust the person on the line. They become very emotional, and that builds to a sense of denial when uh, somebody says to them, you know, this doesn't sound right. They go into that denial sense, and you can't convince them that there's something wrong in this relationship. And And the 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 criminal is very adept at using trust.
1: Right. So the the person who is the um, perpetrator of this is using techniques. They're they're learning about the person through their dating website and then through email exchange. They're getting personal information. Um, You mentioned in your notes to me that um, declaration of love comes early in the relationship, so they're they're showing tremendous amounts of affection for for a person and and really making the person feel good, I guess, right and uh, and wanted and needed and and loved.
5: Exactly, exactly, and you know that's part of this technique. These people are very clearly well educated in human psychology and it's very manipulative you know somebody comes up to you on the street and says i love you you're going to kind of shake your head somebody does this online you've never met them but you got all this information supposedly about them and you get hooked and the the best way you know because this is so emotional for the victim the best way to Uh, intervene, if you're a a relative, if you're a friend, and you see this uh, going down the wrong path, is enlist somebody that the victim trusts. And that would be uh, a doctor, a minister, a rabbi. Uh, It could be um, somebody who... this. uh, uh, I'll use an example. Uh, If you have a close friend who has been a long-time close friend, uh, that's the kind of person who can make the difference in breaking through to the person who's overwhelmed by the emotion.
1: And so um, it, it does get to a point, I guess, obviously, if there's $547 million being lost through this fraud, um, there's got to be a lot of shame around that, but we still would encourage people even after the fact, to try to report. And if that happens, I mean, is there any hope on the horizon here if do we you mentioned FBI and, and all of this other stuff? Are, are they able to crack down on any of this or what's the future look like?
3: They've
5: been somewhat successful uh, in very limited ways uh typically the criminals in in this type of scam are operating outside the country in what they would consider to be a safe place. Uh place where you can continue your business by paying off the right people or the, the government of that country doesn't care. So uh that's why we we try to work through organizations like the FBI, uh the uh Secret Service, because they have connections to law enforcement in other places. And sadly, when one of the call centers that's being used for this kind of scam, or almost any kind of scam, is closed down, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. They pop up somewhere
1: else. Sure,
5: yeah. With 547 million, that's that's 2021. We don't have the numbers pulled together yet for 2022. And the the other thing about it is that, that I guess is, uh, is pretty scary is that most of the reports don't end up going to one place. Some of it's collected by the Federal Trade Commission, some by the FBI, some by the Vermont Attorney General's Office, and they don't collect that into one place. So we don't know what the real numbers are. But, you know, the guess is somewhere in excess of a billion dollars. Wow. Yeah. That's why there's a lot of incentive to the people creating these problems.
1: Right. So you're talking about two. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just saying, you're talking about two different things here. One is that we have the victims who we, you know, we want or, or we're, we we do not have victims yet, but if you're on a dating site and, and this kind of thing happens, you definitely want to be, uh, alert to the possibility and it, it could be legitimate, but you pointed out a lot of the red flags, um, you know, request to move the relationship quickly to, personal email and things like that so they're isolating the person but we also want to alert you know the general public who suddenly a mom a dad a trusted friend older younger is has a smile on their face and they're talking about a romance that's online and we ought to as as friends and relatives um, jump into it a little bit more be a little bit more nosy I guess right yes
5: I think that, that's fair, you know, and if, if somebody discovers that, you know, I'm being victimized, report it. Uh, there is no shame and there, there isn't a case of, well, you know, you should have known better. That, that's out of the question because the people that are doing these things are very intelligent and they know how to manipulate. So saying somebody, oh, you know, a five-year-old could have figured that. No, you don't want to say that. And you don't want to try to, you know, say this is uh, something that you should have known better. What you want to do is comfort the victim and say, let's see what we can do to help you here. And the best place you can go, at least in the state of Vermont, uh, is the Vermont Attorney General's office. The AG's office has a program called the Consumer Assistance Program. There's a number, 800-649-2424, and they will take your reports and then contact you and get some more details. And it's always important that when you discover you're a victim or you're reporting something on um, the situation that's occurred with a friend or family member, Get as many facts as you can to provide to the AGO's office, the Attorney General's, because they are the pros in the state of Vermont. You can also report the the situation to the Federal Trade Commission. And uh, ftc.gov has a reporting link that you can file a report on. But, again, I'd urge you to go to the, the Vermont Attorney General's office, uh, because it's local, they care about Vermonters, and they're very good at what they
1: do. Yeah, we're talking with Elliot, um, Greenblatt. We only have about 30 seconds left, uh, Elliot. I want to thank you very much for, for this. It's a very important topic. If you know somebody out there who is, um, talking about online romance and, you know, they, they want to get a cashier's check or something to send to their friend to help them out, Uh, raise the red flags. Uh, So thank you for joining us, Elliot, and we'll talk to you again soon.
0: In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com.
1: Good morning. It's Brad Ferlin, WDEV, Vermont Viewpoint, on a Monday, Um, be every Monday now, that I'll be joining you, and it's a privilege to be here. Um, Very grateful for... Um, the listeners out there who tune in um, all week long for Vermont Viewpoint, and uh, we get to chat with a lot of interesting people. Uh, I want to thank um, my guests earlier, um, Molly Gray and Elliot Greenblatt, um, for um, the discussion we have. We're now um, going to uh, St. Albans and uh, also Montpelier with Representative Casey Tuth. Uh Welcome, Casey.
6: Yeah, thank you for having me. Can
1: you hear me? yeah, I can hear you well um the when we were talking with Molly earlier, one of the things that was um you know we kind of pointed out um Molly was pretty young, going into um the lieutenant governor's position. She hadn't been a legislator um she had you know done various campaign stuff with um with Senator Welch and and uh, with Senator Leahy, then House Representative Welch, um, and and you too are um, youthful on the youthful side. Uh, I know you're St Albans City, um, and St Alb. You went to the elementary school in St Albans and been involved in sports, went to Castleton, um, those kind of things. But what about getting interested in politics at a young age?
6: Yeah. So when I was in college, I had the opportunity to work on Governor Douglas's campaign and it kind of became like a disease. You know, you, you want to keep doing it. It's uh, politics is one of those crazy things. It's not for everyone, but once you're involved, you you kind of stay in it. And I've worked on lieutenant governor campaigns, state senate, house rep. Um, this is my third term. Um, and I, I like it that I'm uh, currently I'm the co-chair of the Vermont Future Caucus. Um, and I'm 37. So I'll, I'll let everyone say, Um, I'll let everyone call me young for as long as they want to. Uh, but I, I am in Montpelier. I am considered one of the younger people there and it becomes a big issue. Um, when you look at people that, uh, it's hard to serve. So I have two kids. They're both in school. They're both involved in sports and we have something going on every night, it seems. Um, and you know, I have to drive an hour to Montpelier. So it is, it becomes an issue. And one of the things we're talking in the future caucus is legislative pay, like it or love it. Um, I think that's a way to get more than just you know retired people and people that are you know kind of live within better means that can serve the state of Vermont. Um, but that being said, that issue of higher pay, um, I think, is a is a good idea. But it would also be a better idea if we could shorten our session. Uh, we don't need to be there till May. I think we can get a lot of our work done in the first couple of months.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because I've been an advocate of just that for years. That If we shorten the session, um, we could up the pay. We, you could, you could double the pay if you only went, you know, half the time. Mm -hmm. You you also, um, could limit some damage. (laughs) (laughs) There's like a thousand bills get introduced every session, Mm -hmm. right? And, and what's the capacity for Vermonters to have one more law? I just don't even understand how, how that happens. Uh, is it necessary i mean what what happens there
6: well i i mean you 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 hit the nail on the head a thousand plus bills and we only work on a, like a few um you know we'll get we'll get a, the ones that are important like language that needs to be cleared up or if there's something that has to get fixed between what federal law want needs from us and what municipalities uh, municipalities are trying to do so there are the important bills and then you know we we all we all know that we have an issue coming up with housing and um, workforce development in the state so those are like our key focus and we're really focusing on those right now so a number of bills just sit on the wall so we put our legislative council to write all these bills for us and a majority of them just sit on the wall and never get looked at um, and we know our priorities and i think each party knows what the priorities are and i think we all agree what the priorities are like i said housing and and, um, child care is another big one. Um, we just spend most of our time fighting over the right way to, you know, what, who thinks the right way should to get to those uh, answers.
1: And committee chairs have quite a bit of power on this too, right? What, what bills yeah. move or don't move.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they set the tone and they, they, they get a, a feel from the committee, at least in my experiences, they let the committee kind of give their viewpoint of what our priorities are within the committee, but they, they, have the final say in what bills come off the wall.
1: So we um, had a big uh, turnover in jobs, so to speak, um, in the legislature. You've got a lot of freshmen, probably all ages, but from from different communities. What impact has that had this year on on your beginning of the legislative season and how things are moving forward?
6: Well, like every year, there's a learning curve. We, we're coming back from COVID, so even the people that were elected last year um, or I mean, last term uh, that have come back, haven't really been in the building that much. So like learning about legislative procedure on the floor, how um, introducing themselves to lobbyists and people within the building that they need to know. Um, so it's, it's kind of a learning curve there uh, for them, but um, we do have a lot of fresh faces and it's, it's, it's good to see, but we also have a lot of work to do and, and, and the the ones that you know i'm i've been there for this is my fifth year so third term um i'm one of the long longer serving ones i know there are people that have served many more years longer than me but um it's you know the the experience in the building has gone down which isn't a bad thing i think it's good to get fresh ideas and see new people but i'm still trying to learn everyone's name and and face and um as a republican i'm the uh, assistant minority leader so uh we only had two uh, 10 new uh republicans to learn so that was pretty easy for us.
1: Mm. And you you mentioned I mean you're in your third term and congratulations and thank you for the service especially you, you're in my county and uh mm-hmm. I'm in St Albans as well. Um in the beginning there there was sort of this anecdotal thing that um freshman legislators coming in were sort of like children at the Thanksgiving table. <laughs> Uh, seen and not heard i don't know if that's true or not but um have you felt that as time's gone on that you you have more of a voice and and you can impact more
6: yeah um, experience comes with confidence I, i'm a type of person that unless i'm totally confident in something i'm not going to speak too much about it um and my first year i didn't see I don't think at all on the floor unless to introduce someone that was there. Um, but it comes a learning curve. So, like, I'm learning. It's a lot like going to school. You go into committee, you learn everything, you go to your caucus meetings, you learn what everyone else is doing, and you listen on the floor. Um, now, uh, just having the confidence of knowing what is going on. So it, it does help the, the, the amount of time you're there to know the nuances and the just the underlying stuff that happens in each bill and how, how the how the process works. And we've seen that. And, and, you know, we've all been, there. we, I've been, I was a freshman and I didn't know, I luckily had, um, mentors and people that I could look up to and we, we still do that now, but just talking to people within the building, like, why are we on recess or why are we doing this? Knowing that now, we've gone through it. Like, I, I could tell you how, uh, how a constitutional amendment happens because we did two of them last year, um, or the last two years, I guess, the last two terms. Um, so just like knowing how things go and experiencing them, it's experiencing those things helps, um, gain your
1: confidence yeah and i suspect that you now are mentoring um Mm -hmm. others which is must be gratifying you're in a um what people term i guess accurately a veto proof um majority um you're in the minority of that of that world but yet do you still feel like you there's um, and I'll, and I'll back up a little. Remember, I remember Governor Salmon, who was a friend of mine, um, over the years said in, in the old days, you know, you could disagree with, with people on the other side of the, the aisle, but you could, at the end of the day, you could come together for things that are valuable for Vermonters. Um, can you still today?
6: Yeah. I mean, we have to. I've had to do that. I've been in the minority since being in there and doesn't look like it's getting, it's actually gotten worse, uh, in numbers. Uh, but we, you know, most of the work that happens, happens in committee. Uh, I happen to be ranking member on House Education, so I have a pretty good say, um, with our, you know, I have a pretty good working relationship with our chair. Uh, we work across the aisle as much as we can. We always say to make, um, bad bills better or whatever, um, to, to try to make things a little bit better. Um, and they listen. Uh, there is a good working uh, relationship, but that was the, the issue, right? When we were in, uh, when we were at home during COVID is you didn't, you couldn't build these relationships that you can build in person. And being in person is so much, uh, better for, I, I believe, legislators to get their work done because you network with not only the people that are in the room, but the people that are in the hallway. And, um, that's where you can work across the aisle because you can gain trust. It's hard to gain trust over a phone call or a text message or an email. That face to face, um, work really does work. Uh, the face-to-face work really does help um, build those relationships. Um, but when it comes to, you know, the minority versus the majority party, we are constantly working. And like I said earlier, we have, I think we have the same goals in mind. Like child care is a big one. Um, the, the plan that I've seen that the RAND report, I believe it was like 450 million or was it 650 million? It was a big pay, pay um, it was a, Big price tag for that, and like we we all agree that we have an issue with our child care program. I will be um, introducing some language that'll be it's, it's fifty six million instead of the four hundred or whatever million it was. So we have we have to work on compromise. That's a big word. That that's a, the word that we use a lot is compromise. And and um, so you know we give a little, get a little, and that's all done in the in the committee.
1: Casey Super Bowl pick.
6: Super Bowl pick, um, this is such a tough one. I'm a Patriots fan.
1: Yes, of and, course you are. <laughs> and,
6: yeah, I mean, do I get to go to the Chiefs on this one? I, I'm not a big Eagles fan, so maybe the Chiefs.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. we'll see in a week. Um,
6: yeah. So you're on
1: education. Um, Molly Gray and I were discussing school choice earlier in um, the program, and it seems to be on the radar screen. It was definitely on the radar screen of the Senate last year. They passed a bill, sent it over to the House. The House um, didn't pass it; didn't take it up. Um, but things are still brewing. Are there some updates on on that, and where you think things are headed?
6: Um, not so much. What we're talking about right now is there was a a, concept, um, a Supreme Court decision, excuse me, in uh, in Maine, Carson versus and I think is what it's called. Um, and that's what we're kind of dealing with, where our funding our funding's going. So we're not focusing so much on school choice, but just where our state funding can go um, and discrimination within uh, schools. So it's not like a topic that we have um, brought up and that we're discussing in um, committee yet.
1: Okay. Um, maybe on the horizon. Um, Could be, yeah. You had talked about housing, childcare, workforce development or Hotbeds of legislative work. Are, are there other things that were seen, or I know there was a, a budget adjustment that was a little bit um was questioned, at least by Republicans. Uh, mm-hmm. What what are yeah, fri- what, what's going on with Sorry. that?
6: So yeah, Thursday and Friday we we discussed the budget adjustment act, and um it came out of committee eight four. The four Republicans on appropriations uh, had a couple issues with it, and. and the issues we had with it were there were three topics that we felt that uh, that were concerning. So the first one was there was a $50 million to VHCB that was put in. Um, my issue with that personally was um, VHCB has done a good job at building houses and, and getting more housing. We have a huge housing crisis, um, but the problem is they have a lot of money that they haven't allocated yet, and my... My concern is a lot of that money is going to Chittenden County, um, and, and the governor mentioned in his in his speech in his uh, his budget address back in January was that we need to bridge this gap between rural Vermont and our more I'll, I'll call it not so rural Vermont, but our urban areas, um, and, and focus on housing in those areas where there there isn't there hasn't been much. And you know, I'm thinking in Franklin County, like Berkshire, Bakersfield, Fairfield uh, areas like that. Um, where they could use maybe five to ten units instead of twenty plus units, um, and we have a really good program in VHIP that that's that does cheaper renovations on houses that we could spend that money on, um, and that was fifty million. Um, another nine point two million to organic dairy farmers. Um, my issue with that is more of a policy question instead of a uh, appropriation, um, and I don't think they even spoke with the agency of a bag. I don't think Anthony Tev- Secretary uh, Tevits was even in um, to testify on that. And then the last one is this homeless um, uh, money for homeless uh, housing, uh, emergency housing. Uh, we have currently have a federal program going right now that has spent, I believe, around $400 million in the last two and a half years. And that has gone to, you know, get people in housing during COVID. Um, but the issue there is They want to, uh, the goal of this is to extend this with another $21 million until the end of June, um, to help people, you know, get housing. And the problem with that is the people that are utilizing this program, they're being put into, uh, hotels with hotel vouchers and those people are not getting the services that they need. So they're sitting in there if they're, you know, they have a substance abuse problem there. They're, they're just getting a room and they might, still be using if they if they were able to go to a shelter they're not allowed to use at the shelter there's more services for people to help them check on them um, we're kind of just putting a band-aid over this instead of solving the root of the problem and the people that really 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 need the help um, you know we just had one of the coldest weekends that I could remember in my lifetime those provisions of the, the emergency uh, cold weather exemption and things like that those are still in place. People will still get the services they need. We're just going to stop spending. Um, this is like an $8 million a month burn rate that it's going. In. And we had federal funds to pay for it. Now we want to switch that to using state funds to pay for it. And that's where I'm kind of like, ah, that money could be better spent um, because we're still helping those that really need it.
1: And it begs the question, what happens after, you know, on July 1st, where do you go? Because yeah. you've you, yeah. you definitely – and and – no one is saying that we don't want to take care of people who are in need and you know being outside and freezing but there are definitely you know we we want the resources to be there but we also want to build something that makes it more palatable
6: yeah and that cliff is really important this is then this program's been winding down since i believe october and to just keep throwing money at it i don't think helps the people that need to be helped and like i said the transitional stuff where people need actual services is that's where you need to focus that money on. And this is taking 90 million more than what the uh, governor recommend was. And we're worried that infrastructure money, I know that the IIJA, which is the infrastructure jobs act, there's money that we can invest in down the line, the next two, three, four years, where we put a dollar in and the state and the feds give us $4 to that. So every dollar we spend, the, the feds will give us four. We need to invest in that while we have the money now. Um, to set aside that money so that we can spend that money um, and get that money from the federal government later on.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the word compromise, and uh, you know when when there's a budget adjustment, one might think, "Well, it's going to be you know six million or eight million or something," and and then negotiation. But ninety million is like to the moon and back. It seems yeah. to me.
6: Yeah, it, it seems like like some of the money was just pulled out like $50 million more to that. And I I understand the reasoning. I I spoke with the chair of a person, you know, it does send a message that we are trying to fix the housing problem. And it does alert more municipalities and people around the state that, Hey, we have this money available, come in and apply for it and start using it. And, And I understand that. And it's just, you know, we, we know we can put the brakes on something since we know we talked about how long we're here. We're here until May. We have enough time. This, that money could really be in the big bill, where we can we can thoughtfully spend that. You know, we can have thoughtful discussions within committees and 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 everything, and vet that money pr- appropriately.
1: You talked about housing, um, you know, the shortage of housing, which we definitely know, and and with COVID. Looked like out of staters were buying up, uh, Vermont as fast as they could and, uh, inflated home prices in counties, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. double cash was paid. Um, but also the, um, Act 250 has been sort of on the, you know, it's almost like a dirty word, even though it, you know, it's protecting the character of Vermont. Yet it really does create a, um, a difficult system in some respects to, to, do housing in rural Vermont. Is there, does that get discussed in all of this?
6: Yeah. We, I mean, we've, we've talked about active 50 reform, I think every year for the last 30 years, but the, uh, the, the issue you have is you have some um, municipalities that have the ability to put housing in, but their own bylaws and their own structure that they have in place, prevent some housing I know the governor was talking about a place down in Castleton that wanted to to build but there's some of their own laws um, act 250 that's you know when there's certain provisions that trigger act 250 it can slow down development which is good in some areas but you know right now we kind of need these things and we have specific places like there are places in downtowns and your your, um, your growth centers where you have the ability to build housing now. And I think that's where we need to, to work on that, but we also need to focus on those rural areas where they don't have water and wastewater. And, and I know we do have some money in the budget this year, which I think's great. Um, that's going to help these smaller towns that don't have like town administrators that can apply for grants and work on that federal ARPA money. Um, cause that's where, that's what we're looking at. A lot of that ARPA money that came in from the feds during COVID haven't been, hasn't been spent because they don't have town administrators that can, uh, that know how to do the work to get that money um so that's really important to help those communities out where they can do development they just don't have the resources or the staff to to do that
1: yeah you you brought up a key thing federal money um covid it's been almost like this magic river flow um and it's some time for lack of better phrase peter to pay paul um are, is that on the radar screen for legislators? I mean, we, we're in the moment, but eventually all this is going to, you know, we're, we lose this stuff.
6: Yeah, this is there's a financial cliff on that. That money is going to be done. I believe this year or next fiscal year is going to be no more federal funds. And my The issue we had last year when we were spending, we had the highest budget until this year. Um, that money was being spent to create positions within state government within municipalities within you know uh, schools school districts that extend it to like ongoing paying so like an example is you bring a position on it might be a temporary position but then they'll say oh we like this position we're going to keep it on that just expands our government spending um, and that federal money will run out we'll have to pay for that out of state funds we'll either have to raise it or get rid of something else to pay for that later on down the line.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, we're talking with Representative Casey Toof of St. Albans. I really appreciate you coming on with me this morning and for your, um, thoughtful consideration about the challenges that Vermont is facing. And we appreciate your leadership and thanks for being on today.
6: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. And we hope to get you back on and do some updates as the session goes on. And maybe when the, when, the, when the meat grinders really go on, we'll, Um, We'll, we'll try to see if there's some remedy.